Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Today we take quite a tour. We start discussing the future of the Republican Party. We move to an interesting idea about lining up startups with capital and with companies that can buy them out and develop them. We move on to looking at the future of the environment and its sustainability and what lessons we might have learned from the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And we end up by discussing Chinese efforts to clean up the environment in China. I hope you enjoy. Thomas Patterson, professor at Harvard University. Welcome to the broadcast. Hello, you, have, you have a new book. Is the Republican Party destroying itself? Do you answer that question in the book? I think the answer is that it's in trouble and will get in more trouble as time goes by. You look at the Asian American vote. In the early 1990s, this was a Republican vote. Uh, today, it's about three to one Democratic. Uh, and to lose a group uh, by that margin over that short a period of time ought to have been a warning bell to the Republican Party. And it happens to be the fastest growing ethnic group in America. The second is, if we go back to the 1930s and we look at the 32, 36, and 40 election, in those elections, new voters voted two to one Democratic, and they stayed loyal to the Democratic Party for a generation. That was the real core of the New Deal coalition that led the Democrats to dominate American politics from the 30s uh, almost to the end of the 1960s. That's only happened once since then, and it's the last three presidential elections where young people, young adults, have voted overwhelmingly for one party, and that's the Democratic Party. If that continues, and that group now accounts for everybody pretty much under 40 years of age, if that continues, uh, in another two, three election cycles, the Republican Party is going to be looking uh, at the Democratic Party through the rearview mirror. Elections are decided by the middle, that rather small number of people who changes, which change their opinion from election to election, from party to party, depending on uh, on the policies and the tenor of the times. Uh, is the new stridency in the Republican Party part of its problem? I think it is part of the problem. Uh, it's a problem, though, that's been developing. It didn't just come overnight. It didn't arrive with Donald Trump. Uh, I think this movement to the right uh, started with Richard Nixon's Southern strategy. Uh, when he tried to pick up the South, the racial conservatives in the South, and then they picked up uh, the religious conservatives, and then the small government people. Uh, now, they're, they're all pretty much on the same page with those other issues, which has given the Republican Party a really solid base. Uh, and you can see it holding even uh, with all of the things that are going on right now. That base holds. Uh, on the other hand, what's happened over time is that they've pushed it out further and further to the right. And one of the pieces of the book, I show about how the parties have moved away from the moderate voters that you're talking about, the independents particularly. Uh, it's now the case that the Republicans on the average issue position are twice as far away from the middle, from the independents, than is the Democratic Party. Uh, and for a party to get out on the wings in a two-party system, uh, that is trouble in the long run. You need the voters in the middle, and the Republican Party has really distanced itself from those voters. It's not that those voters have moved away from the Republican Party. 
the Republican Party has moved increasingly to the right, moving away from the voters that it needs in the center. Do we have a different kind of person running for office in the Republican Party? We don't see the kinds of Republicans that you and I basically grew up with, that we knew over the decades, uh, loosely termed the Rockefeller Republicans. Uh, are we not getting the talent running for office? Well, I think, I think the talent is there, but it's of a different kind. Uh, and you're quite right. I mean, if you go back to the 60s, 70s, even into the early years of the Reagan presidency, the dominant wing of the Republican Party was the progressive wing. Uh, almost always the presidential candidate came out of that wing. Reagan was an exception. Uh, but if you look at that party today and you ask how many moderates, uh, let's say, are, there are in the Senate, uh, you may be talking about a handful of Republicans. And uh, and even in their voting pattern, they're not all that moderate. So, you know, Susan Collins is also often held up as the moderate Republican. Uh, you know, she votes uh, with Donald Trump 87, 88, 89% of the time uh, and with her fellow Republicans over 90% of the time. So uh, the core of the Republican Party is in its conservative wing. That's where the power is. And that's where the new recruits are coming from. Uh, one reason, of course, as you know, is the... Uh, we have primary elections and uh, the voters who turn out in primaries are disproportionately those that have really strong views. And in the Republican Party, that's the conservatives. They tend to nominate conservative candidates. To what extent are the thoughtful members of the party tolerating the Trump administration as Kevin Osnos says in the New Yorker, uh, in order to secure power, in order to keep power and you know, basically holding their noses. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, um, you know, certainly Donald Trump has delivered on a lot of things that uh, other Republicans, the congressional Republicans have wanted, uh, you know, less regulation, lower taxes and so on. Uh, now, there are issues where he's gotten himself crosswise with where Republicans used to stand, free trade being a clear example of that. So. I do think there is some of that holding of the nose, but uh, on the other hand, I do, I do think there's some overlap there. And, uh, you know, I think some of them have stayed quiet uh, around uh, certain kinds of issues in part to stave off the possibility of that primary election challenger coming at them from the right that, uh, you know, Trump owns the base in a sense at the moment. And, uh, you know, if Trump turns on a, a Democrat, a Republican member of Congress, you can almost be assured that member will have a primary election challenger. Uh, and uh, that challenger will probably be supported not only by Trump, but by the right-wing media, because they're, they're very much in the same mold uh, as Donald Trump. Thank you so much for your time. Well, Ellen, thank you. We welcome to the broadcast now Noam Weissman, who is the co-founder of Hunters.io. And that is spelled H-U-N-T-E-R-Z. Hello, Noam. Hello, Llewellyn. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to have you along. Uh, you're doing something interesting at a time when there's not a lot of good news. You, in fact, are doing something that is good news for a lot of people. You are trying to bring together manufacturers and financiers and startups and just people who have ideas. Tell me how it works. Uh, supposing I have a brilliant idea, or an idea which I think is brilliant, but it needs the attention of, say, uh, 
a computer company. Mm -hmm. Where do you come in? Okay, so uh, what we do is we connect startups to large enterprises, and it doesn't matter what enterprise it is and what industry, and we do it through the business network of freelancers, and that can be any person. Uh, usually these are past employees or uh, people that used to sell. So uh, if you want, as the startup, you want an introduction to uh, Dell or to Cisco. Okay. IBM. Uh, so someone that worked for 20 years in IBM knows the organization really well and can help you navigate it and get the first meeting that you need with the person that you want to talk to. So it's, either, so it's either those people that used to work for uh, those organizations or sales professionals that used to sell to these organizations um, and they are freelancing and they're offering their networks uh, for these startups. And how do you find those people? So we try to advertise and, um, and we, um, you know, we try to get to people through either LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or Google. Uh, but, you know, the best case scenario for us is just people talking about Hunter's.io, uh, benefiting from it, and then word of mouth uh, uh, scales up pretty nicely. And uh, uh, how is it going? It's been, you know, it's been going well before COVID-19 started, uh, but since the outbreak hit, we've been seeing amazing growth, which is understandable. Uh, but, but really, it has been remarkable, you know, the hunter's growth, the side of the people that make the connections uh, since March 1st grew by over 300%. And on the other side of the marketplace, the startups uh, growth since that date was over 400%. And, and uh, uh, percents are misleading, a percent, you know, five to two is a very large percentage, but uh, in reality, it's nothing. It's, uh, so tell me uh, how many people are engaged? How many, how many transactions have, are underway or have been completed? Mm -hmm. So first of all, you're absolutely right. Uh, percentage sometimes are misleading. We have thousands of people that are joining every month. Uh, we cross the 10,000 hunters uh, on the platform. And, and just to give you an idea as to the sense of uh, scale here, uh, this is probably today the largest and most diverse sales force outside of any organization that has the most diverse reach to enterprises across, and we now uh, cover 55 different industries all around the world. We cover 69, 69 countries, enterprises in 69 countries and 55 industries. And we cross, of course, uh, uh, and we cover 10,000 enterprises and more. So give me a, a hypothetical or a real case study of somewhere where somebody has come to you, a startup, and you have been able to find the freelancer, as you call them, the person well-connected in an established industry or an established company. And as a result of that connection, the large entity has become interested in the small entity. So, we, you know, we have hundreds of startups on the platform, and I love all of them, but I want to give you a, an example that is relevant for these days. Uh, there's a great startup. Uh, they're, they're called IntelliVisit. And 
IntelliVisit created a virtual care delivery platform. Uh, they have designed a web-based, really easy to use, COVID-19 rapid assessment tool. And that quickly collects uh, patient information and risk factors. Uh, and with collaboration with the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, they launched the first instance of their, of their product. Now, you would think that in times like this, IntelliVisit can go into any hospital and offer their services, but that's not the case. They're struggling to get to the relevant hospitals to offer their very much needed services. And I'm very happy that, you know, they joined us and they're uh, looking with us to connect to hospital systems, uh, large hospital systems around the country. One of them in specific is called Rush Medical Center. That's a very large hospital in Chicago. Uh, and we got them together with a freelancer, a hunter that is now out of a job because of COVID-19. He used to work for Rush Medical Center. And now he doesn't have a job, but he knows the entire IT organization there and knows the exact right people for IntelliVisit to start the sales process there. So these guys were connected and they're now in the process of speaking to that uh, medical center. And, and we have a few other hospitals lined up for them as well. It's a fascinating business. We thank you for coming on the broadcast. Come back and report how it's going. With pleasure. Thank you for having me. Edward Salzberg is Executive Director of the Security and Sustainability Forum, which is a hugely influential webinar that takes place several times a month, as far as I know, and deals with just those subjects. Have I characterize that correctly, Ed. Welcome to the broadcast, by the way. Well, thank you, Llewellyn. Good to see you again, as always, and thanks for inviting me on. Sustainability. Uh, is that going to be more of a practical goal after the pandemic? Have we changed our views on what we're doing to the environment, how we're chewing up the earth? Uh, you know, in, in, in some days, I'm very encouraged. In other days, not so encouraged. Um, I think that um, worldwide, we've got a long way to go. There's some great leaders here in terms of transitioning from the kind of economy that we have now to one that's more ecologically based. I was just listening to the president of the, of the uh, European Union Commission talk about uh, the green technology program there, which is very encouraging. Uh, there, 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 we have no choice. There has to be a transition to... Uh, protecting the earth. You cannot cross Mother Nature forever. Ever. She's going to come back and bite you. And I think the pandemic is a really good indication of that. They like the phrase circular economy. They do. And, and we don't really use that phrase here, but it's self-explanatory, isn't it? it? It is. And, it, you know, I've really come to realize that that's really the basis of the new economy. Uh, we want to reduce the impact on the earth, so we have to reuse and be reuse materials and be much more efficient in the way that we use them. There is a strong pathway forward there. Of course, that doesn't get the carbon out of the air, but it does reduce the amount of carbon we do put in the air. And it also protects the other ecological services that we as humans depend upon. Uh, soils that are not regenerated are not going to continue to grow for long and produce food. So we have massive issues that we have to address because of our really, really insulting the different ecosystem services that the planet offers. The planet, the planet invests in our economy and we abuse that investment. 
because I lived in Africa, I'm very aware of water or the shortage of water, drought, mm -hmm. the terrible specter of drought is always with you in most of Africa. What do you feel about the world supply of water? Are we going to be able to have enough that we can use for domestic purposes and enough for agriculture? Well, it, it's really not a question of enough water because there is plenty of water. It's a question of where it is and how to get it to the right places. Or in the end, if you can't, like the kinds of droughts that are that take place in Africa and also in Europe to a great extent, um, that puts pressure on the population to either change the way they work with water. And there are things that we can do. There are very su successful uh, programs in drought or desert areas um, or there's going to be migration, but I, I think it's it's uh, it's a question of water management more than it is water shortages, except in those areas where the droughts are really so severe that um, there is going to have to be a population shift, I think. Uh, With the uh, pandemic, the coronavirus, do you think that this is enough to frighten us into better stewardship of the world? Well, we can certainly wish. Uh, I, I think that uh, people are realizing how precious it is to, to live on the earth. I think that the sequestration that's taking place in the United States and across the world and seeing what's happened to the, to the environment around us. I saw deer in my backyard for the first time in many, many years. Turtles are coming onto the beach and reproducing a nearly extinct species in Brazil. Um, Birds are chirping all day here uh, because there are fewer cars and, few, and fewer people out in the area. Um, I think that I think that there's the possibility of there being a new appreciation of how precious it is to live on this planet and how the contribution that the planet makes to our society um, has to be valued. You know, you, we've got to wrestle control of the economy uh, out of out of the, the hands of the people that are, are really have made very, very bad decisions, both in terms of society um, and the environment. Um, so it's going to take quite an effort to do that. Uh, but I think there are pockets all over the world of enthusiasm and and encouragement. And I think this next generation that is coming up is much more attuned to doing more with less living within the uh, within the planetary system than our generation which has really has been has has really increased the insults year after year um, on our systems let's switch back to the forum uh, how do people find it how do they participate and do they have to pay it's all free we're fortunate that arizona state university george washington other universities and many companies uh, underwrite the webinars. So we put together program plans with them to develop, uh, to convene experts around topics that are really impactful and try to bring solutions um, to uh, government officials, to um, educators, and to um, uh, business people. It's all free, and they can go on ssfonline.org, register for free, and take advantage of all the free education that's up there, and get invited to the webinars we do roughly two a month. Uh, would you like to give me an example of two or three webinar subjects that you have held? Um, well, we have a large series going on with ASU on decarbonization. And that's, uh, that's, 
Uh, ASU is um, Arizona State University, right? Right, with, with Lightworks at Arizona State University. It's our fifth year of developing uh, decarbonization uh, programs. This year in June, we're starting a four-part and a probably a longer series on um, smart systems, artificial intelligence, and, and that technology is a pathway to decarbonization. Um, I think that's going to be a really exciting one. We do a lot of work on urban resilience with with ASU too, with the School of Sustainability. Ed, these are look and see. They're not just audio, right? Right, right. You can watch the you can watch the webinar as well as listening to it. That's right. You can watch them. They're powerpoints and cameras. Discussions with experts from all over the world, and we do get many of the best people, much like you do, the, the world leaders in, in this area. Uh, we archive them and um, make them available for free. Faculty from around the world use them for curriculum enrichment um, in their courses. Edward Salzberg, Executive Director of Security and Sustainability Forum. Thank you. Ken Silverstein is a senior contributor to Forbes.com one of the most experienced and knowledgeable energy reporters who has been covering energy for several decades. Ken, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks, Lou Ellen. Thanks for having me. You've got a new dimension, a new leaf in your portfolio, China. Yes. What have you been doing in China and how does that affect Covey? How does that affect your energy writing? Are you writing about energy in China or are you doing something Totally different. Well, it, it started with, um, I, be, I became a contributor to a, a Chinese publication and started covering the, the country considerably. And then I was invited over there for a few weeks uh, as part of a formal media tour. And I became really ensconced in uh, the issues. Um, and got deeper and deeper involved in the continent. In energy, what do we have to learn from the Chinese? Um, you know, the Chinese have been coal-centric for a long, long time, and they really are very devoted to becoming uh, a much greener economy. Um, they're changing out their coal, coal portfolio for natural gas, and that's a big opportunity uh, for American LNG producers and those who export that fuel. Um, they're going into renewables. Uh, they're devoted to um, uh, reducing their carbon emissions. Uh, they've become a leader in, the, in this Paris Climate Accord. They've sort of stepped in to fill the void left by the United States under the Trump administration. Um, they're doing a lot of right things. Every time I mention how we should reduce our carbon footprint, yeah, everybody says, well, but the Chinese will just go on, they're building so many more coal plants, uh, China, and then they're throwing India, but China primarily. Uh, in fact, the Chinese have a very substantial environmental ethic nowadays. Yes? When I was there, they, you know, it wasn't just... Um, PR. I mean, they're really devoted. Are they? They're bringing in people from the countryside into the cities uh, because this is where the jobs are. 
And in order to have quality of life, they've got to have clean air. And their model cities really are the most, in this country, I've not seen anything as advanced as I have seen over there, at least what I saw. What ways? What, what, how was it advanced, you mean? Yes. Um, it, I described it in one story I wrote as almost like out of a Hollywood set. It's that um, romantic, that uh, beautiful. Um, I understand that I only saw certain things. I didn't see every corner of the country uh, during my time there. Uh, but in order to bring in all of these multinational companies, they have to provide a quality of life. They have to provide um, good living, uh, clean air, um, all the things that if you are um, a big city in this country that you're trying to do to recruit uh, multinational corporations. You're doing everything you can. Uh, you, you're a lot of green space, uh, trying to become as green as possible using wind and solar. Um, they're trying to do all this stuff. I was there quite a while, while ago during the Clinton administration, yeah. and I was struck one by the difference between industrial China and rural China. You would drive out of a city and 20 kilometers later, mm -hmm. where you had been in a very modern city, uh, 20 kilometers later, there's a man with two water buckets on a pole on his shoulder, no different than it had been uh, a thousand years ago, probably. Mm -hmm. And awful air pollution in the cities, just choking in Shanghai and Beijing. Every city had, and they were trying very hard to clean it up, mm -hmm. be very authoritarian and close factories. So they had a need, which I think they understood very clearly, at least they told me, to clean up the air, to do something about the pollution, which had been uh, the product of very rapid industrialization. Well, that's what they that's what they said is that five years ago, the air in Beijing and Shanghai was intolerable. But I was there, and it, it was the the index was just fine uh, on the days that that I was there. Um, understand that it's a country of what, like one point two billion people, four hundred million people. That's bigger than the United States are now in the middle class. Uh, meaning they have money and that the corporations are locating there in order to market their goods and services to China. Um, they're the ones that have the buying power. Um, and in order to get uh, the companies to locate there, in order to move more people into the middle class, that is from the rural areas into the cities where all of these jobs are located, they have to create a, a quality of life. Um, it really is a, a fascinating country. I, I just wish I would have become enamored of it decades ago. I hope you'll come back and that we'll have more time for a full discussion of this fascinating subject. Of course. Thank you, Llewellyn. Clearly, you come to China with a different view, a different 
lens, looking at it through the energy lens rather than from the through the political one, which most reporters do when they go there. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the broadcast. And people can read your stuff at Forbes.com. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Llewellyn. That's our show for today. There is hope. Bear up. Carry on. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.